Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Study, Big Book Study Groups, Thursday Night Alcoholics and God, Speaker Step Series. Now let's have our joke now. Hi, I'm Spencer, an alcoholic joke teller. <laughs> this is from A Rabbit Walks Into a Bar, Best Jokes and Cartoons from AA Grapevine. I just love the idea of joining Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought the alcoholics part meant they drank, and the anonymous part meant they didn't tell anyone about it. I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Rebecca. Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation, so please... Take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noises that might or will distract others. Take this time to connect to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? If so, let's start the meditation. Thank you. 
right, and we're going to follow with the fog light prayer. It's on both screens if you guys don't know it. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common situation. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in, brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news that this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Sally to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one. So it, it is kind, to, kind of important to know what one is. Hi, I'm Sally, alcoholic. Spiritual experience. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which, upon careful reading, shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unexpected inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most empathetically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane slash meeting mode or just turn off. This week we have Tom. Um, this is his first session, and I'm really excited to hear what he has to say. Here's Tom. Good evening, good evening. How's everybody tonight? 
Good. My name's Tom, and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, last time I was here, they gave me one of those joke books. They didn't like my corny jokes, you know. <laughs> but there's some good jokes in that joke book. I, I, I've been using it the past year in, in several meetings. Uh, one of the ones I liked in there was a, these two guys, Joe and Tony, uh, you know, they meet each other in, the, in AA uh, because uh, they've been sent there by the judge. And, uh, you know, they have to get their sheets signed, you know, and they have to go to so many meetings. And so Joe, he, he completes all his assigned meetings by the judge and gets all his papers signed and everything. And he stops going. And one day he runs into Tony out in the street. And uh, Tony has continued going. And he, he said to Tony, he goes, uh, are you still going to those AA meetings? And Tony told Joe, he said, yeah. He says, uh, I'm still going. And he said, Joe said to Tony, he said, well, how long do you have to go? And uh, Tony says, uh, well, I guess the rest of my life. And Joe says, Jesus, what judge did you have? <laughs> right? <laughs> so I thought maybe, you know, some people could identify with that because I... I could sure identify with that, you know. You hear my story, you're going to hear a lot of that. I'm not a a lecturer, an AA lecturer, and I'm going to warn you of that right away. What I am is a a person who has managed to stay sober, clean and sober for the past 40 years, since December the 9th, 1983. And that's that's because of some some really simple things, you know. And what I I want to get across to you in the message that I carry is a message of my own experience, strength, and hope. You know, I was taught a long time ago uh, by a little man who's been dead for years. His name was Ron Martin. We always talk about all the guys that are dead you know we use their names and we talk about them and we keep them alive that way by talking about them uh, not too many days ago you know I, I ran into a guy I just got back to Florida uh, I got sober here uh, I've been around Florida a long time uh, but I retired and I used to spend a lot of time in Arizona but I'm from Illinois originally I was born in Springfield, Illinois in 1952. Uh, I'm an Irish Catholic. I went to Catholic schools my whole life. Uh, that's another story in itself. You know. The nuns didn't take to me too well. I, I didn't take to them too well either. They started on me in the second grade by grabbing my ears and shaking my head violently. And by the time I got to high school, the Christian brothers were using their knuckles on us. So I was never too crazy for the clergy. Uh, but then corporal punishment was like that if you were a kid that grew up in the 50s and the 60s, you know. Everybody, it seemed like everybody kicked your ass on a constant basis, you know. My old man was a construction worker, you know, and he had a bad temper. 
Of course he had a bad temper. He was a rageaholic. You used to see his father sleeping in doorways on Skid Row. You know, my sister, who's sober a little bit longer than me, she's, she celebrated 40 years about 10 months ago because I took her to her first meeting and then I went and got drunk. That's why she's got 10 months more than me. And we used to sit and talk to him and try to get him to, uh, to see that, you know, alcoholism was a family disease. And his response was always, well, my, my father's drinking didn't bother me because mother wouldn't allow him home if he was drinking. In other words, my grandfather, you know, was a, a periodic who owned a barber shop, and he knew he couldn't come home. So my grandmother worked until she was 77 years old, and my old Irish grandmother was not going to divorce him. She just wouldn't allow him in the house. So he got where he just couldn't take it anymore, and he'd lock up the barber shop and just go straight to Skid Row and live there on Skid Row for about four or five months, sober up, and then he could come home, open his barber shop back up, and maybe he'd put together eight or nine months. That I have a lot of experience with, too. Experience is, uh, is how I was taught to carry this message. That man, Ron Martin, he, he told us, uh, he used to say, you know, I don't come to Alcoholics Anonymous to give advice. And I don't come to Alcoholics Anonymous to take advice. I come to Alcoholics Anonymous to share my experience, strength, and hope. And that's what I come to listen to. Because that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is. It's a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope not their opinions and ideas. So I don't have opinions and ideas. Oh, believe me, I got plenty of opinions and a whole bunch of great ideas, which usually got me drunk, you know, because that was what the real problem was. What I want to do and what I want to try to do in the next six weeks, doing two steps at a meeting, is what the 12 and 12 says in the forward, this one little line. AA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. Practiced as a way of life. You see, I have untreated alcoholism every morning when I wake up. It's always an ism. It's never a wasm. I do not have alcohol wasm. I have alcoholism. And my alcoholism, you know, because, you see, what I came to understand about alcoholism is this alcoholism is not an addiction. It's not addiction. It's an obsession. An obsession of the mind. Alcohol didn't make me an alcoholic. Drugs didn't make me a drug addict. Alcohol and drugs are what I use to medicate the disease that centers in my mind called alcoholism. 
And what that alcoholism is, is a, is a mind-powered disease. It's powered by my mind and my thinking. And my problem, you know, I, I don't know how many, how many people, and I don't want to embarrass you, you know, but how many people have tried this before and not succeeded? Thank you. I came here 50 years ago. I was 21 years old. I started when I was 13. I never remember a time in my life. I didn't know what it was. I learned it here in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. What the problem was, was that I never remember a time in my life that I wasn't restless, irritable, and discontented. I can never remember being comfortable in this world. I did not belong. There was something wrong with me. I couldn't put my finger on it. I grew up, you know, near the cornfields, out back of my house. You went right out the back of my house and into the cornfields. And, then, and the kids that grew up in the 50s, and you're, you've seen the old black and white movies, the old 50s science fiction movies, you know, with the flying saucers and the little green men from Mars landing, you know, and comic books. And that, that whole, that was my first whole big escape was science fiction, comic books, science fiction novels. I taught myself a lot just because I learned so well to read. I loved to read. It took me out of the way I felt. It took me to another place, and I used to lay up there in the bed at night and look out into the cornfield and imagine, you know, that a flying saucer was going to land out there in the cornfield, and they, the planet I was from was there to pick me up and take me where I belonged because I didn't belong. And I didn't play well with other children. I had a really bad temper. I'd inherited a whole lot of my father's rageaholic personality. You know, I saw, I saw my family was, uh, is very loud. You will, you will get to know me in the next six weeks what I mean by that. People that know me and know me for a long time, like Brogan sitting over there, will tell you how loud I can be. Most places, I don't even need a microphone. I'll push the microphone away. My wife of 35 years would say, I always know when the Matthews are here because I hear them when they get out of the car out at the curb. In my house, you had to be loud to be heard. You had to overtalk everybody because everybody overtalked each other. And we were abusive and aggressive. You know, we were a bunch of loudmouthed, arrogant, obnoxious, egomaniacs. And that's what I always was, an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. I learned that from my fourth step, from doing the steps. Because that's what we have to learn in the first six steps. We have to learn about ourselves, about what is my problem. See, that was the deal. What was my problem? Well, I solved that problem at 13 when I found a bottle of wine in the woods that some other kid had stashed there. A big bottle of what, where I come from we call Dago Red, you know, which is a Chianti, you know, and a glass bottle with the straw. 
And, I, and it was so cold in Illinois. It was freezing February. And there was ice chips in the wine. The wine was starting to, to freeze. And I can still remember the ice chips melting in my throat as I sucked that whole bottle of wine down. Because I was afraid whoever else stole it, you know, would come by and find me with it there. So I wanted, I wanted to get drunk. I wanted to see what this drunkness felt like. And what happened was I fell in love. I fell in love with that feeling. It took away all that irritability, discomfort, restlessness. And I would spend years, you know, trying to recapture that, recapture that feeling. Because, you see, I never crossed over any line into alcoholism. I know lots of alcoholics who have. That's their experience. We all have our own experience. We all have our own stories. You know, and this is my story. I can't tell your story, although I might. I might tell somebody else's story in here. But this is my story. I never had a drink in my life that I didn't get drunk. I would not drink if I couldn't get drunk. I saw no use in drinking if I couldn't get drunk. What's the use of drinking if you don't get drunk? You know, I have no comprehension of what a social drinker is. I don't understand that. I always like to tell this little story. You know, I used to live with this woman in my 20s. She was the president of the bartenders union in Peoria, Illinois, where I live. And I worked construction. She had the best bar in town, the Pier Marquette Hotel downtown. She had Saturday nights off. That's the only time she went to the neighborhood saloon, tavern, you know, was on Saturday night with me. I went every night. And on Saturday night, the bar would be two, three deep in people, and I drank shots and beers. I, I never had a cocktail. I don't drink, I never drank Tom Collins's, you know, or any kind of fancy drink. I, I'm a beer, whiskey, and wine drinker, you know, and she liked to drink schnapps on the rocks in a jigger. You know what a jigger is? It's about four shots, you know. And the ice would melt in her glass. And I never had a drink in my life that the ice melted in my glass. I don't think I've ever had a soft drink that the ice melts in my glass. I don't drink that way. Bartenders used to say, I never saw anybody drink so fast before. I drank beer in a glass. I always asked for a glass because you can drink beer a lot faster if you put it in a glass than trying to suck it out of a bottle, especially a long neck, you know. But I used to throw those beers down one shot. And after a couple of hours, I would look, you know, and I've had maybe 15 beers and shots, and she's nursing her third schnapps on the rocks with the melted ice in the glass. And I would say, honey, you want another drink? And she'd say, oh, no, I'm starting to feel it. And I'd think, what in the hell is wrong with this woman? She, she's, a, she's a prude. She doesn't know how to have a good time. You see, I don't know. Do you know? I don't know. 
Can you identify with that? Can you identify with, I'm starting to feel it so I don't want any more? See, I can't identify with that. You see, when I start to feel it, it's time for more. It's not time to go home, okay? Because I don't go home. And the longer I drank, the longer I stayed out there. And you could take me out in the woods five miles. I'd walk all the way back into town to get a drink, okay? You would literally have to lock me up because I wasn't stopping drinking and I wasn't stopping using. I used to. I'm, you know, listen, I grew up in the 60s, man. I tripped probably three, three times a week, at least, minimum, you know? I've ate a lot of acid. I've done a lot of dope. But I did it just like I did my drinking. It was the same thing. You know, I, I don't want to get into all that. You know, because I want to talk about what happened to me. How did I come, how did I come to this first step? Well, I'll tell you how. I was 21. After uh, several years of really hard drinking and drugging, Alcoholism had uh, really started to get to me. I had been thrown out of the Army. I went in the Army at 18. At 21, they threw me out for being a heroin addict. I was locked up. I got clean off of heroin. And uh, I started drinking again right away. They brought me back from overseas. My father had come down here in 1972 to work construction from Illinois. He always wanted to come back to Florida. He was here during the Second World War, and so this is where they brought me. They brought me to the VA hospital in Miami, and they let me out the back door. And I had a duffel bag full of uniforms, and I took them and threw them in the dumpster. And I said, I'll never cut my hair or shave again. And I went to the taxi stand, and I told the cab driver, take me to Pompano Beach. <laughs> and he said, you mean Pompano? I says, I don't know what the hell I mean. I'm from Illinois, okay? He goes, Pompano, that's where you want to go. I says, okay. So he took me there, and the old man said, I don't got a job for you on my job, but they're building a sewer plant. He lived in Coral Springs when they were just building it. And they were just building the first sewer plant out there. And I went to work out on that sewer plant. And they told me don't drink because, you see, I'd had hepatitis. We called serum hepatitis in those days. There wasn't no A, B, C. There was just serum and infectious. Serum hepatitis you got from using dirty needles with somebody else. Infectious, you could pick it up someplace, like B. So I didn't like that. I didn't like that because... That's how I always had friends. Friends are important to me. See, I was early on a loner. I never seemed to fit in with anybody. Then by the time I got in the fifth grade and we moved back into town, my old man used to get people that were doctors and dentists and rich folks, you know, to buy farms on the outskirts of town and then move us in the farmhouse and we built subdivision. That's how subdivisions were built on old farms. The last thing we'd do is tear the farmhouse down, move back into town. So but the second time through the fifth grade, I came into town, I started running with a little street gang, and I fit in. 
I fit in because I was never good with sports because I couldn't be perfect at it. I was never good with books because I couldn't be perfect at it. So I couldn't be good at being good, and so I learned how to be good at being bad. And I became a bad guy. I always say I was not just an alcoholic and a drug addict, but a criminal too. I have a long criminal history. Just this last spring, me and a sponsee of mine and our wives went to go to Canada. As we got up, we were going to Vancouver. We got up to the border, and the guy uh, said, you guys pull over there, because we were all tatted. We're all tatted up. My whole body's tattooed, his too. And he says, uh, go inside. And uh, they, you know, they had the NCIC computer, and they called me up, and they said, you've been arrested a lot. I said, well, I haven't been arrested in 40 years. And they said, that's okay. We don't want you in Canada. You're banned for life from here. You're free to return to the United States, okay? So uh, that just goes to show you, you know, what a life of crime, you know, will do for you. I was lucky that I never did any hard time. But that's what got me here. That's what brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous. Because, you see, I had to have somebody to run with. And I'm 21 now, so I started running with the guys on the job. And we started drinking. I started drinking. Fell right into drinking. I mean, that's where I started, was with drinking. Was out in Plantation one night at a dance at the VFW with another veteran and... uh, we both had our own bottles of vodka, and the last thing I can remember before I went in a blackout was the two of us rolling around on the ground, beating the hell out of each other. Because that's usually, if you were my buddy, that's usually what we'd end up doing, you know, is beating the hell out of each other. And uh, I came out of the blackout, and I was in Broward General Hospital up on Sample Road. I didn't know where I was. All I know is they had the curtain around me, and I was on the gurney. My clothes were on a chair. And I sat up, and I looked at myself in the mirror, and my nose was split wide open. My face was hurting really bad. And uh, I said, i got to get out of here to myself. And I, and I put my clothes on, and I tried to sneak out of the hospital, and two nurses grabbed me, and they said, where are you going? And I says, I'm leaving. And they said, oh, no, you can't leave. And I said, what do you mean I can't leave? They says, oh, no, you, you can't leave. The state police are out in the lobby. They want you. Want me? For what? Do you ever get a look from people like, you know, nurses and cops and other people when you say, for what? And like, you don't even know. You don't know. You don't know what you did? What did I do? You hit a carload of people out there at Sample and Powerline. In those days, that was all bell peppers, cucumbers, tomatoes. That was the country. That was dirt roads in those days, 1973. There was a bunch of little kids in that car. They're going to need plastic surgery. You messed them up bad. I said, I don't even have a car. They said, well, you're driving your buddy's pickup. Well, where's he? 
Oh, he went through the windshield. He doesn't have any right eyebrow anymore, you know. We sewed that up. Set him home, and you broke the steering wheel with your face. That's what happened to you. You know, see, there's something about remorse, okay? Up until that time, I never had any remorse over the way I live. Even with all the other criminals I ran with, because if I did, if, if something happened to you, that was your own fault. Okay? You're in the life just like me. I don't have no responsibility. I, took, I never felt any responsibility for anything I ever did to anybody. Everything I stole. How do you think I, how do you think I drank at 13? I stole. I was stealing before I, I ever started drinking. I've been stealing since the fifth grade, running with gangs, getting in rumbles, hitting people with chains, stabbing people with switchblade. I'm one of those old-time greasers with the black leather jacket and the greased back hair, okay? That's who I am. That's where I come from. Rockabilly music is what I cut my teeth on. And... uh I get, uh, get uh, I'm going to BCC, Broward Community College, on the GI Bill because the construction went to hell. Just to get a few hundred bucks a month to stay high on, drink on. And there was a Korean War veteran that was sitting next to me in the class. We're taking air conditioning class, and he looked at my face and wanted to know what happened. And he asked me, if I could come with him and have a cup of coffee at McDonald's, I had to wait to take the bus back to Coral Springs anyway. I said, okay. I didn't have no money. That man started talking to me about alcoholism. Nobody had ever talked to me about alcoholism before. All anybody had ever talked to me about is, why don't you do the right thing? Why don't you grow up? Why do you have to be the way you are? Can't you, you know... Be different? Can't you drink right? Do you have to get so drunk? Do you have to get in so much trouble all the time? Why can't you behave yourself? Nobody had ever explained to me that alcoholism was a disease. And as I was riding home on that bus that night, I was thinking, riding on the bus, what is my problem? Why, why it does it seem like my life has always been wrong? Nothing has ever gone right. Why is it like that? And it was a voice that wasn't mine inside my head. It said, because you're an alcoholic like the man's talking about. I said, yeah. And I went home. And I got the phone book out, you know, and right there on the first page, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, intergroup, Broward County intergroup, and I called them up. And they said, there's a meeting right down the street from your house in the Catholic Church. And I went down there, and I had hair down to here and a beard down to here, and I stood in the bushes, and I watched all these middle-aged squares going in the back door of this Catholic church. I'm 21 years old, 1973. 
Do you know what the age of the young people of AA was in those days? The young people of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1973 here in Fort Lauderdale? They were in their 40s. Those were the young people. There wasn't too many 20-somethings in those days. See? There's a, there's a big reason. Those people 50 years ago were the people that, that uh, I knew and first started to know were the old-timers that were the hope, most hopeless, helpless alcoholics. A lot of them, the Skid Row guys. What hadn't happened and what's happened over the years is what it talks about in step one on page 23 in the 12 and 12 where it says, since step one requires an admission that our lives have become unmanageable, how could people such as these take step one? It was obviously necessary to raise the bottom the rest of us had hit to the point where it would hit them. Because see, they're talking about the younger people, the people that haven't gone through all this yet, the, you know, middle-class people, the people that have had decent education, you know, the high-bottom drunks, not the most helpless, hopeless, skid row guys, okay? Not the guys that have been in and out of prison for years. Not the women, you know, that have been dragged through the mud. But the the people that the bottom has come up. It's obviously necessary to raise the bottom the rest of us had hit to the point where it would hit them. By going back in our own drinking histories, we could show that years before we, we realized it, we were out of control, that our drinking even then was no mere habit, that it was indeed the beginning of a fatal progression. To the doubters, we could say, perhaps you're not an alcoholic after all, why don't you try some more controlled drinking? Bearing in mind, meanwhile, what we have told you about alcoholism. Well, I guess that's what happened to me. Because I was too young. I was only 21. I had a lot of years of drinking left. Oh, I thought, it, I thought these people were nice, you know. I mean... Listen, if it wasn't for the greeter, I wouldn't even have gotten that meeting because I'm standing in the bushes. I'm not going in there. I'm watching all these old fogies, you know, squares, you know, with their white shirts and bow ties and shit, you know, going in. I don't want anything to do with them. I'm thinking these people don't even look like me. What am I doing here? But see, the greeter... Which I always say the greeter is a great job. The greeter saw me lurking around out there. He knew I was in the right place. He went and got me and brought me inside. He brought me inside and he started introducing me to all these old squares and they'd give me a cup of coffee and they were being nice to me. And I was not used to people being nice to me because I was not nice. If you brought me to the bar where you drank, your bartender would tell you, don't bother coming back if you bring that guy. Don't ever bring him back here again. Because I'm 5'7", and you put some whiskey in me, and I turn into 7'5". And I'm starting trouble. I'm trouble. I'm not nice. I am not a nice drunk. I was never a nice drunk. 
I was always mean, arrogant, obnoxious, loud mouth, crazy drunk. And I thought, well, this is pretty good. And I looked at the stat, and I said, yeah, I have a problem with this drinking. I, I can see this drinking has caused me a problem. But, you know, this is pretty easy to figure out. If you have a problem with drinking, you just don't drink, right? I had a problem with shooting dope, so I, I just don't shoot dope anymore. I don't have any problem with that. And I don't have any problem now. I, I, I just don't drink, and, and, and that'll, that'll fix it, right? That'll fix everything. But I'm a very clever guy, you know. See, I'm, I'm a figure-outer, and I'm an analyzer. And I'm gonna, I need to go in front of a judge. And I figure, you know what? It probably would stand me well if I had some proof before I get to that judge that I'm in this thing and that I'm going along with this deal. And so after several months, I finally stood in front of the judge right down here at Broward County Courthouse. And I said, Your Honor, he asked me, he asked me the right question. He said, what's your problem? Well, I knew what to tell him. I learned to say it here. You wanted me to say, my name's Tom and I'm an alcoholic, right? To hang out with you. Because that's all I was looking to do was hang out with you. I wasn't looking for no sponsor. I didn't need no book. I didn't need no prayers. I didn't need anything you were talking about. I just needed some proof that I'm doing the right thing, see, so you don't put me in jail. Your Honor, I'm an alcoholic, but I'm going to those meetings. You know, and if you just, if you just give me a break, I'm telling you, you won't see me here again. And he did the worst thing he could have done for me. Yeah, he gave me that break. See, I'm not the kind of guy you can give a break to. I'm the kind of guy that if you give me a break, I figure out I just used you. My hustle just worked. My con just worked. Because that's the kind of guy I am. That's the character that I was. The character that I brought here was a user and an abuser of drugs and alcohol and people, places, and things. I'm a user. Oh, I don't think I am. I actually think I'm a nice guy. I actually have a delusion. We say delusion in Alcoholics Anonymous, not denial. Denial was a step up for me. I lived in delusion. I believed I was one of these stand-up, old-time gangster guys, you know. But I'd steal your drugs and help you look for them. I'd try to get you drunk and screw your wife. If I could get you to pass out and get, and get her. I didn't have any principles, ethics, honor among thieves. What a bunch of crap. Not the people I ran with. I never met anybody on my side, that side of life, that had any honor whatsoever. Pretend honor. Phony. Lying, cheating, stealing. 
I remember when the man who brought me to God said to me, you know what, Tom? And he was a, an old mafia guy. He said, I was a liar, a cheat, and a thief, and I never met another alcoholic who wasn't. Looked me right in the eye. And the first thought that went through my mind was, is he talking about me? He can't be talking about me. I'm a nice guy. That's how sick I was. And I became sicker as the years went by. But what that did was it set up a, a pattern for me. And that pattern set it up so that every time now that I got in trouble, I ran back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I kept doing the same thing over and over. The problem is, if alcoholism doesn't kill you, it has a little trick for you. That trick's called progression. You see, a whole lot of things hadn't happened to me when I first got here at 21. But by the time I got to be 31, 10 years later, a whole lot of stuff had happened. I hadn't been to jail yet when I first got here, but in the 10 years of being around, I used to say in and out, but I wasn't in. I was just around. You got to be doing the deal to be in, and I was never doing any deal. I was doing my deal. I was doing what, what we do to get our stuff back. See? That's all I'm really here for, is to get my stuff back, to get a license back, to get a girlfriend back, to get some money back, to get a place to live back, to get a job back, to get a car back, to get the law off my back, to get my folks off my back. That's really what I'm doing here. I'm not here to change and become a new character. Because that's what I'm going to spend the next five weeks with you if you're going to be here talking to you about is becoming a new character. I finally had to learn the hard way what they told me. Tom, if you don't change the guy that brought you in here, that's the guy that's been taking you out all these years. It's that guy. Because I wouldn't change that guy. I didn't think there was anything wrong with that guy. But that guy couldn't stay sober. And as the years went by, the periods of time that I could spend out there on the street, they got shorter because I went to the bottom faster. And the periods of time that I could spend sitting in the rooms of AA, they got shorter too because you can't sit around here and be such a phony. It's killing you to stay sober. Oh, you can do like I did for years and try the marijuana maintenance program. See how that works for you. In Arizona, they call that California sobriety. They ain't too crazy for California people in Arizona. (laughs) I remember when I first came 50 years ago, there was no Narcotics Anonymous in Fort Lauderdale 50 years ago. There was no place but AA for old dope fiends to go. And for for the dope fiends that were in the rooms... 50 years ago in Fort Lauderdale, they used to say, in AA, we don't drink and we don't take any mind or mood-altering drugs. And that was for the dope fiends in the room. You see, and so I got out in the car. You see, I've already figured out it's the booze and the, and, and the heroin, you know, that was the problem. And so I reach underneath my seat, and I pull that bag of weed out, you know, and I roll me up a big fat one and start toking on it, and I tell myself, You know what? This doesn't alter my mind or my mood. It enhances it. (laughs) 
this is a mind and mood enhancing drug. Do you think I ever brought that up as a topic of discussion? Or asked anybody else what they thought about it? You see, I don't tell this story to, to explain a substance to you. It's not about that. It's about this. The thinking process. The way that I process information and become a master of rationalization and justification to soothe my conscience and minimize my guilt and give me the ability to do whatever the hell I want to do and ignore you. Ignore your experience, strength, and hope. Ignore all the years that you've been sober. I don't need you because what's the problem here? The real problem here is I run my life Nobody's going to tell me how to run it. I ran it all right. I ran it right into the ground. Ran it into the ground, you know, and found myself after 10 years of doing this, sitting in a jail cell on attempted burglary charges, sobered up, waiting to go to gun club in the Boynton City Jail and thinking, what's my problem? What, why, can't, why can't I straighten my life out? Why things can't be different? Why do I keep doing this stuff over and over? And a little voice came back in my head. And it said, because you're crazy. And the reason you're crazy is because you think you can run your life, but you can't, but you think you can, and that's why you're insane. And I said, yeah, that's the truth. I finally took the first step. Now, I'm interested in bringing the bottom up. You don't have to keep doing that. Relapse is not a requirement. You can take this message now that the problem is my thinking. The problem's not the first drink. I'm the problem. My thinking is the problem. I have an obsession, an obsessive mind that keeps telling me, I know how to run my life, and I know how to run your life, and I know the way that life ought to run, and if everything would just go my way, it would be a wonderful life. You see, I'm, I'm the guy in the big book. My story's written right in there. I'm the guy who thinks that I can wrest satisfaction and happiness from this life if I just manage well. It hasn't got anything to do with drinking or taking drugs. It has to do with the way I think, the disease that's centered in my mind, the talking disease. And I listen to it because who do I go to? Who have I been going to my whole life as the authority for my life? I've been going to me as the authority for my life. Listening to my disease talking to me. Instead of learning how to do things differently and changing the guy that kept doing this. And so I surrender. I finally surrender. I go to the VA because I can't stay sober. They keep me in there two months. Two months on anti abuse. I've got this first step now. I realize, you know, that my way hasn't, hasn't done me any good at all. I got to learn something different. I got to do something different. 
I'm changing. I come out. But see, I got a bad resentment. I got a really, really bad resentment, you know. My resentment is, uh, it's, it's, it's right here in the big book. Right here in the big book, in We Agnostics. Last page, page 56. Our friend was a minister's son. He attended church school where he became rebellious at what he thought was an overdose of religious education. For years thereafter, he was dogged by trouble and frustration, business failure, insanity, fatal illness, suicide. These calamities in his immediate family embittered and depressed him. Post-war delusionment, ever more serious alcoholism, impending mental and physical collapse brought him to the point of self-destruction. One night when confined in a hospital, he was approached by an alcoholic who had known a spiritual experience. Our friend's gorge rose as he bitterly cried out, If there's a God, he certainly hasn't done anything for me. But later, alone in his room, he asked himself this question. Is it possible that all the religious people I have known are wrong? While pondering the answer, he felt as though he lived in hell. Then, like a thunderbolt, a great thought came. It crowded out all else. Who are you to say there is no God? This man recounts that he tumbled out of bed to his knees. In a few seconds, he was overwhelmed by a conviction of the presence of God. It poured over and through him with the certainty and majesty of a great tide at flood. The barriers he had built through the years were swept away. He stood in the presence of infinite love and power, infinite power and love. He had stepped from bridge to shore. For the first time, he lived in conscious companionship with his creator. Thus, our friend's cornerstone was fixed in place. No, long, no later vicissitude has shaken it. His alcoholic problem was taken away that very night years ago. It disappeared. Save for a few brief moments, the temptation and thought of drink has never returned. And at such times, a great revulsion has risen up in him. Seemingly, he could not drink. Even if he would, God had restored his sanity. What is this but a miracle of healing? Yet its elements are simple. Circumstances made him willing to believe. He humbly offered himself to his maker. Then he knew, and he knew, even so as God restored us all to our right minds. To this man, the revelation was sudden. Some of us grow into it more slowly, but he has come to all who have honestly sought him. When we drew near to him, he disclosed himself to us. My home group in Prescott is the Bridge to Shore group. My home group here is the Boca Men's Recovery for 28 years. How'd that happen to me? I hated God. I was a God-hater. I didn't know I was a God-hater. I learned from another man in Alcoholics Anonymous when he said it. When he said he was a God-hater. I heard him say that and I knew that that was the truth about me. That I was a God-hater too. But something had already happened to me. It happened to me when I came out of that VA hospital. And I came to go back to the old Central House in Del Rey, the old American Legion Central House. And as I went to go walk up to the door, an old man stood in the doorway. And he wouldn't move. And I looked at him and I said, what's the problem, man? He said, where are you going? So I'm going to the meeting. He said, you don't want to get sober. I said, I've been sober for two months. He said, yeah, I heard up the VA hospital in Tampa on, on an abuse. That's easy. 
or what are you going to do now? And I'm thinking, who is this jerk? I don't even know this guy. What's he talking to me like this for? He says, you see, defiance is my outstanding characteristic, just like my friend here. Defiance. He says, what are you going to do now? And I says, what do you want me to do? He said, all I want you to do is what I've been trying to tell you for years to do. And I think, he's crazy. I don't even know him. What's he talking about telling me for years to do? And I go, yeah, what's that? In my smart-ass way. He says, get on your knees and ask God for the strength to stay clean and sober. And I look at him and I say, I don't see how that's going to do anything. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, how's your way been working, wise guy? How's your way been working for you? What are you going to say with a track record like mine? You're going to say the same thing I said. I'm so egotistical, I couldn't even say he was right. All I could say was, well, I guess you're right. And then he told me the best thing that anything anybody has ever said to me in Alcoholics Anonymous. He said to me, well then, I guess what you believe in doesn't make any difference then, does it? Because what you believe in doesn't work. So you know what? I'm not asking you, what are you willing to believe in? Because this thing here is not about what you're willing to believe. This thing here is about what are you willing to do? Are you willing to just do it? You don't have to believe it. But can you just get on your knees in the morning and ask God for the strength to stay clean and sober? Don't ask him for anything else. He doesn't need you to tell him what you need because you ain't God. That's the thing you need to get through to yourself. You're not God. You're not a power greater than this alcoholism. Isn't it a power greater than you? Hasn't it kicked your ass all these years, no matter how hard you've tried to, to conquer this drinking? I could never conquer. Just try and be sincere. Can you do that? I said, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. I can try and be sincere. And that's what I did. For a long time, I just kept praying, going to meetings, working the steps. One day, one day I was working up in Palm Beach, digging ditches for the plumbers underneath the building. And I came out from under there. I've been a laborer my whole life. I came out from under there, and I went down the street to get me a sandwich at the 7-Eleven. And as I came out, I looked in the car, and there was two other construction workers, and I looked through the window, and they had quarts of cold beer between their legs, and they had the Frisbee turned up, and they were cleaning the seeds. And I, my eyes glued on that because that's where I always was every lunchtime, that quart of cold beer and that reefer. And I'm walking down the street, and I got up underneath that building in the dark, and I sat down in the ditch all by myself, and I started thinking, those guys are getting high. They're getting high. And then I had a thought. I couldn't remember when the last time was that I thought about it. 
I'd been thinking about it every day since I was 13 years old. When am I going to do it again? Where am I going to get it from? What's it going to feel like? Who am I going to do it with? The thinking about it. The obsession of thinking about it. I couldn't remember. And I started to cry. Sitting in that ditch by myself. Because I knew. God didn't hate me. God loved me. God was so strong that he pulled it from me and I didn't even know it was gone. I couldn't remember how long it had even been. That it was completely removed without me knowing it. That it had been, I don't know, months maybe. I knew it was over a year since I'd got sober. Because December the 17th, December the 17th in the... How much time do I have left? Okay. December the 17th, I just want to share this with you. See, I'm a a 24-hour-a-day book reader, you know, because we didn't have any other book when I got sober, so I've I've always read the 24-hour-a-day book. And it happened in December. The 17th was the next day. The thought for the day says, the way of faith is, of course, not confined to AA. It is for everybody who really wants to live. But many people can go through life without much of it. Many are doing so to their own sorrow. The world is full of lack of faith. Many people have lost confidence in any meaning in the universe. Many are wondering if it has any meaning at all. Many are at loose ends. Life has no goal for many. They are strangers in the land. They're not at home. But for us in AA, the way of faith is the way of life. We have proved by our past lives that we could not live without it. Do I think I could live happily without faith? The meditation for the day is what really got me. Anytime you see in the 24-hour day books in italics, it comes from the Bible. The man who wrote the 24-hour day book was an Oxford group man. says, he maketh his son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends the rain on the just and the unjust. See, I thought God was unjust. God does not interfere with the work of the natural laws. The laws of nature are unchangeable. Otherwise, we could not depend on them. As far as natural laws are concerned, God makes no distinction between people. Sickness or death may strike anywhere. But spiritual laws are also made to be obeyed. Our choice of good or evil depends on whether we go upward to true success and victory in life or downward to loss and defeat. It's not about the hereafter. It's about the here and now. An old man that started our meeting in Boca, John Mosher, used to tell us, there's only three laws that you've got to obey in this life. You've got to obey the laws of man or your ass is going to the penitentiary. You got to obey the laws of nature or your ass going to get sick and die. And you need to obey the laws of God or you're going to live a stinking, miserable life here and now. Thanks for letting me share tonight. Let's thank the speaker again.
here's Ryan with our secretary's report. Hey, I'm Ryan, I'm a recovered alcoholic secretary. Hey, Ryan. Hi. In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. And we also have QR codes on the back of the chairs. If you'd rather give through Venmo, you can do it that way. And then also, if you're watching on Zoom, there should be a QR code there for you to uh, give that way. I've asked Troy to read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in AA identify as recovered rather than recovering and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. So let's welcome up Troy. Troy, I'm a recovered alcoholic. Recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in the body. Page 23. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Nineteen forty style big book sponsorship from forward to the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe and experience is that God has not changed over time and neither should the sacred approach back into his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75 plus percent success rate. Does anybody need a sponsor? If you could raise your hand. Awesome. We got a hand up in the back uh, if anybody wants to see him after the meeting. What's your name? Nick. Nick? Uh, yeah, so if you want to see Nick after the meeting. Um, and if you were too shy to raise your hand, just come up and stand awkwardly up here and someone will come talk to you. Can I see a show of hands of recovered alcoholics? Awesome. If your hand's not up, then see someone whose hand is. And we got a couple announcements. Intergroup is where you can buy AA-related literature and medallions. Intergroup is also responsible for creating our where and when and scheduling the AA hotline. Stop by and visit them. Broward County Institutions Committee is responsible for bringing meetings into places where people like us can't get to an AA meeting, such as jails, detoxes, and rehabs. They meet monthly to organize the meeting schedules at the 12-step house. Is anyone here a member of BCIC? Well, if you need any uh, information on that, you can just see a home group member. And then here's some uh, upcoming service opportunities. Um, The 60th intergroup appreciation banquet is going to be in April, and their second planning meeting is coming up on January 17th at 6.30. Um, And then also AA's Got Talent is coming up, and they're going to be having their next planning meeting on the 14th of this month. And that's for our our meeting next week. So if you like Tom tonight, he was great. Come out and check him out next week. We only have him for six weeks. So you're going to want to check that out. Monday nights, we have our big book study. It's in the same building on the third floor. Meeting starts at 7.15. Fellowship starts around 6.30. There's coffee and cookies. And that's it. All right. We have CDs, mugs, large print big books, little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale on the table in the back. If you're interested in any of that, just see a home group member after the meeting. 
We meet every Thursday starting promptly at 7.15, and we ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. Also, if you smoke, please just wait till you're uh, 75 feet away from the doors to vape or smoke. Awesome. Thank you. See you next week. We have tonight's session and all the past speakers podcasted at thealcoholicsingod.org. I'd like to invite everyone to to our Monday night big book study. To those who wish to thank tonight's sponsor or speaker, please line up down the center aisle. Let's let's all do the Lord's Prayer in our seats. Our Father, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our stay, our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thy is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Heart is heavy, soul is thirsty, body's aching.
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. See the light, 
lessons when I go to sleep at night and I dream now. song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye. I think you know this one, don't you?
Got one man that just won't say 